Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where my guest reveals the five things they would choose from any time in their life to put in a time capsule. And they can pick anything, no matter how insignificant it seems. It can still be with us, or a passing memory, solid or ephemeral, but it has to be something that they personally cherish. Well, four things they choose are things they cherish and would wish to see preserved, but one of them is something that they would like to erase from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think about again. My guest in this episode is the brilliant stand-up comedian and actor Paul Chowdhury, who was the host of Channel 4's Stand Up for the Week and has been a guest on 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, The Russell Howard Hour. He's headlined Live at the Apollo several times, been a contestant on Series 3 of Taskmaster and was in the television drama series Devils. He's a multi-award winning stand-up comedian with his record-breaking 2019 tour, Live In It, being released as an Amazon Prime special in over 200 countries worldwide. He was the first British Asian stand-up to sell out Wembley Arena. He's won Best Live Event at the ITV Asian Media Awards, Comedian of the Year at the Asian Voice Awards. His videos have been viewed over 35 million times on Facebook and Paul's 2022 tour this autumn is virtually sold out already. So, with us very much looking forward to the massive boost in listing figures, which is a... Or is that not how things work? Oh, well, it was still well worth it. Here is the very charming Paul Chowdhury and the things he'd like to put in a time capsule. And there we are. Hi, Michael. How are you? All right, my mate. How are you doing? I'm a, I'm a big fan. Big fan? Big fan of yours. Yeah, get shut your face. 
<laughs> you were great in spitting image all those years ago. <laughs> it is all those years ago as well, Paul. It's a long, well, long time, mate. Shows my age, Michael. Well, you know, you're, you know, you're a fresh-faced young pup. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> 48, 48 in a couple of weeks. Fantastic. Well, you know, not many of us have had a number one hit. With the chicken song, <laughs> no, so. lots of people who were, who were glad because it would have badly affected their career. <laughs> so that, that, that was a big song at school when I was twelve. Was it? Mm. So you're the ones we got the money from. Yeah, <laughs> we ripped you off. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, are you happy to talk about the things we're going to put into a time capsule? What do you think of this idea? Yeah. That's great, great concept for a podcast. Brilliant. Um, so I've been listening to quite quite a few of your back catalogues. Oh, how nice of you. Great guests on it. Well, we tend to switch around, you and I, on the podcast charts on Apple, I've noticed. We, we bounce around each other, which is... Oh, really? Which is nice, yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm not in your league yet. No, um, no, I'm honoured to be up there with you. I have to say, every time <laughs> I look at it, and I look at the names on the, the list of people who are up there at the top of the charts, I think, wow, how fantastic, just me chatting to people. Yeah. It's a, it's a different forum now, isn't it? Like This would have been radio back in the day. Absolutely, and that would have been much more formal mm. and would have been organised, whereas this is whatever you make it, I think. Exactly. That's what I like about it. Yeah. Okay, so hopefully you've got a, some ideas of things you want to put into the time. Yeah. Um, or unless you want to talk first, actually, Paul, if you wanted to talk about your tour. All right. So if you want to talk about the tour, that would be great. When, you, yeah. when are you going on tour? I'm going back in October. Mm-hmm. Um, actually postponed dates um, so we moved the dates across yeah starting off in London but I've already had two legs so this is like the third leg of the tour yeah so it's October November and December so it's quite an intense month of touring so it's real real mm. real touring rather than just daily I'm up and down the country maybe yeah 50 times in that month and do you having had a gap between doing it before when you come back to it does it take a, a show or two to click back into it well, I do preview shows, so I go mm. to small rooms and just work things out. And as the world evolves, material evolves as well, so you have to make tweaks and rewrites. Yeah. And uh, I tend to um, edit along the way. So if anyone saw this tour at the beginning of the tour, it's very different to where it is now mm. because the world has probably changed more than we've ever known in the past two years. Yeah. We live in a different place now. Um and I'm not saying that's for the best, because no. <laughs> it's uh, it's a very strange p- time to be alive, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is very very odd because, well, particularly if you've got any sort of longevity, like like me, you know, you you look back and you think to yourself, well, I remember people being worried about things before, but they didn't seem so obvious, so in your face. And the thing that really upsets me is the extraordinary division between people's views of the world. That that one view really doesn't contain any of the other view. Mm. They just have one dogged view of yeah. the world, and they're not yeah. open to listen to other people. Well, they're not, and um, this is where the term conspiracy theorist comes into play, mm. and the invention of the Illuminati, <laughs> yes, which was a which was a social experiment to see if people could believe in higher forces and, mm. and people did believe and the people do believe there are forces in play that we're not in control of yeah which is can be a hindrance to people's lives because they find excuses as to why things aren't working out their way mm-hmm. so a conspiracy theory in itself has become a conspiracy theory it's interesting that you say to people no we made that up <laughs> and they go ah but did you exactly did you exactly yeah that's a very clever idea of good way to hide it pretend you made it up 
Well, like the pandemic, as they call it. Yeah. The plan. Do you think this government, the government can't get anything right when they need to get things right? How are they going to plan? <laughs> They're so stupid that how are you going to plan all this? Yeah. Boris isn't that bright. No. Think. no. <laughs> Even if you think they've got people behind them in sort of little rooms working it all out, the <laughs> idea of, of organizing society. And then also, what does it achieve? What would it achieve mm. to pretend that there's a terrible disease out there? that we all have to stay indoors and stop working. What 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 does that do? Well, they're saying it's for the big pharma companies to um, to profit. <laughs> like they haven't got enough money as it is. Yeah. It's like, who, who's profiting from uh, to what? <laughs> what more? Where? No, they're trying to do it for the money, isn't it? <laughs> for, nah, man, it's control, man. They're trying to control us, keep us in our houses and that, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then what does that achieve? <laughs> the, the, in fact, that would decrease the economy, keeping us in it. The very, very people who, who, when you say to them, okay, you can come out, they say, no, I can't come out. It's my favourite programme. You can know you're allowed <laughs> yeah. out now. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm watching a box set. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've been living in quarantine literally all my life anyway. <laughs> so apart from leaving to do shows. So, uh, you know, this is my podcast area, as you can see, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of comics have, is Stuart Lee was quite concerned about the... Um, lack of lack decoration? Of de- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he took the words right out of it. So. <laughs> yeah. No, it's sort of, uh, did, did someone lock you in there or did you choose? To- <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. It looks like I've been kidnapped and <laughs> so I've been forced to do a podcast. One comfortable <laughs> sofa. A very generous kidnapper. Yeah. Joseph Fritzel will be coming through that door in a second. <laughs> and they can rechain you to the radiator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't want to offend any people out there that have been kidnapped for anything, so I just want to make that clear. <laughs> you have to be very careful now, Mr. Stevens. Okay. You, you, can't, you can't do jokes anymore. Oh, that's what they you, say. It's very, very difficult now. You, you're going to offend someone. Although I've watched you stand up <laughs> and you seem to have lots. Well, uh, and about anything you like. <laughs> so why you're able to do jokes about all sorts of subjects and not offend people <laughs> and other people are only able to do what well, just a just a joke. It's just a joke down a pub, mate. You know? <laughs> and, it, and everybody in the room is offended. So exactly. how is that possible? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? When you go, hey, mate, you can't say anything anymore, can you? <laughs> you can't say this homophobic, racist, what can you say? Well, <laughs> well you couldn't say it back then anyway. No. You couldn't say it in the 60s and the 70s. You just were getting away with saying it. Mm-hmm. That's the point. The point is you can't say it. And I didn't agree with you saying it back then. But now oh, you can't get into a taxi and they'll start reciting some old Bernard Manning routine. Yes. He's not around anymore, is he? You can't, you can't even get away with that stuff, mate. <laughs> spout out some really long racist joke and expect me to laugh. But I, on stage, I, I, hopefully I'm treading on the right side of the line, mm-hmm. uh, but I do tread very close to it. I, I, I'd say I'm on the line. <laughs> yeah. And it's a balancing act. That tour you did, the last, is that the last tour you did in 2019? That was the, yeah, that was live in it. That was the last Yeah, live in it. Brilliant, brilliant show. But I mean, to do a routine... You can hear the reaction of the audience when you you bring up the subject of the McCanns. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's not um, <laughs> let's not recite that routine on. The no, podcast. no. But it's, a, it's astonishingly brave because it's not about that. Exactly, um, as you say, Michael. It's not about that. It's about the public perception and the media portrayal of such mm. situations. 
But um, you have to be very careful because people, and, and I did a whole routine about the Michael Jackson documentary and yep. the amount of stick I got for those two routines, really? which is why I'm not able to leave the house anymore. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because, um, but in a way, that's slightly ahead of the time, that Michael Jackson thing, because now that's a very accepted viewpoint. Mm. Although still lots of people who fight it, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah. I happened to be in Hastings the other day and there was a free concert on the pier and people were singing songs. And then this girl just started to sing a Michael Jackson song and, and we all turned to each other and looked and went, Hmm, you're allowed to do this. Now. That's the thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's like when it comes to accusations like that or, or crimes of that nature, nobody's putting on a Gary Glitter song anymore. And, no, and and so, but then there aren't any Gary Glitter apologists, really, are there? But Michael Jackson's material was so good mm. that there are some fierce apologists, but nobody's ever apologized. But uh, well, at the same time, then, in all fairness, Michael Jackson was never convicted. No, but neither was Jimmy Savile. No, no, quite. But no one ever apologised to Jimmy Savile and said, well, he no. made some great TV programmes, didn't he? <laughs> Let's repeat them, shall we? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think they've been burnt in the archives. Yeah, quite. But, I mean, it's, it's a tragedy because the songs are great, but for the people who suffered as a result of his actions, I think we oh, want yeah. to show some respect to them. Yeah, exactly. It's the, the people that have survived, the survivors. Um, mm. I'm not equipped or educated enough to to counsel such viewpoints within the media but um it's i think it's a duty for certain entertainers to berate other peers within our fields yeah but hopefully we now live in an age where the likes of harvey weinstein uh, are now being taken down such a powerful mm-hmm. you couldn't even imagine somebody as powerful as him being taken down um and, and we live in an age where people can speak out yeah. And and people can be taken down, and and no one is above um, the law, really. Yeah. Oh, there we are. All right. Well, let's find out the things you want to put into a time capsule. Excellent. So, in no particular order, mm-hmm. and I've actually got uh, three, four, five, seven, and I'm trying to narrow it down to five. Okay. Okay. So it's a tough one. This. Yeah. It was a very tough one. Well, maybe at the end we'll find out the ones that you didn't put in there and wonder why. Yeah. Okay, where should we start then? Let's start with, let's say, start with my favourite comedian yeah. of, of all time. And no one ever guesses this, actually, because they don't assume this would be my favourite. I have a top five, really, or a top ten. Right. But uh, I'd say probably my most inspirational comic who inspired me in stand-up was Jackie Mason. Ah, the brilliant Jackie Mason. The late, great Jackie. I've seen him live, yeah. Yeah, I saw his last two tours in London. Yeah, yeah. I saw him in London twice, yeah. New Ambassadors? Yes, I did, yeah. Fantastic. I was probably there. I was probably there that night. Oh, <laughs> right. He was absolutely fantastic. An amazing comedian. The ability to make people laugh by not even saying words, I think. Yeah. That thing of bada-bing, bada-bong, bada-bing. You know, his rhythm. Just that sort of making noises. Yeah, he's Jackie Mason, for those that don't know, is an American stand-up comedian, an actor, and a former rabbi, born in 1928 in Wisconsin. And um, he left this planet in July of 2021. And he came through the vaudeville era in, in, in Catskills in New York. And, and that kind of, some say that there was no circuit for Jewish comedians. And they almost created their own circuit. And that was called the originations of Jewish comedy in New York. Mm. 
and Jackie Mason was one of them. And uh, oh, so many infamous stories about Jackie Mason and and, uh, and the mafia. <laughs> and you know, you know the story about uh, Old Blue Eyes. No, tell me. Yeah, so Old Blue Eyes. Who am Who am I referring to when I say Old Blue Eyes? Sinatra. Sinatra. Yeah. So Sinatra came to his um, his show. I think it was in Vegas, actually. And that time, the mafia ran Vegas. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Sinatra comes to the show quite drunk and he's just heckling Mason and Mason rips him apart. Um, and the crowd are erupting in laughter. And then um, he goes back to his hotel room and then he gets a knock on his door, opens the door, bang, gets a punch in the nose, broke his nose. A gangster just turned up. Wow. And, and broke his nose and he couldn't perform for another few weeks because of that. Because... Sinatra was so connected with the mafia. Mm-hmm. And that's where the horse's head story comes from, The Godfather. Is it? I think it's the Sinatra. There is that character in The Godfather, isn't there? The yeah. uh, the Italian singer who gets promoted with the help of the mafia. Yeah. And they always think that that's supposed to be Sinatra. It's, it's kind of loosely based on the on Sinatra's introduction to some Hollywood and, and music. And, it's uh, weird, though, isn't it? Because actually Sinatra is just a brilliant singer. Yeah. And you'd sort of think, well, did he need help? Well, at that time, maybe he did because there were people, they weren't getting, he wasn't getting contracts, he wasn't getting deals. Mm-hmm. And um, he wasn't getting in the movies. And it was very hard to get in movies at that point. There weren't yeah. TV channels, so there were very few. Well, I'd have, to, I'd have to look into this of when Sinatra's first film was, um, I can't remember when, what, what was, I don't really know Sinatra's filmography here, so. No, maybe I neither do I. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose there were those songs. He did do films with Dean Martin, didn't they? So they were they were brought well, in to represent the Rat Pack. Yeah, well, the Rat Pack um, going back there, the Rat Pack were controlled by the mafia. So most of the most of the money from the Rat Pack went to the mafia. Wow! So when they used to do live shows, Dean Martin, who was a consummate alcoholic at the time. Mm-hmm. So there were five in the Rat Pack. It was Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., yeah. who converted to – Sammy Davis Jr. became Jewish at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Joey Bishop and Peter Lawford, mm. uh, and they're best known for the film Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, which was the original. The original Ocean's Eleven. And they performed together in the Summit at the Sands. Right, the Sands, yeah. Which I think is the place that Sinatra played all the time. Yeah. He referred to it as his living room. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of recordings of him saying, what are all these people doing in my room? (laughs) (laughs) And that was actually the set of the Rat Pack. If you look at the set where they used to perform, it was like a living room. Yeah, yeah. And it probably explains why um, Dean Martin was always drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it must have been a difficult group to be with. Yeah. You know, there was a real power play, wasn't real there? Real power the time? play. Well, Rat Pack is uh, the slang, is, is members of the press who give wide, often intrusive coverage of their private lives of celebrities or Royal Rat Pack, basically. Right. So um, it's got a, a double meaning there because I thought Rat Pack mm. were a bunch of gangsters, but it's um, it's got a different meaning. Yeah. So Jackie Mason getting on the wrong side of these yeah. people, not a good move. No, that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're going slightly off tangent here, but yeah, yeah. Jackie Mason was probably most famous known for his performance on the Johnny Carson show. Mm. And Johnny Carson was the original David Letterman type, you know, the late night yeah, yeah. show. And um, he ran over time. So Jackie Mason ran over 
And I, I think somebody gave him the light or something and he put his hand up and Carson thought he'd stuck two fingers up at him. Oh. So or, or he, he insulted him or sworn. He said something and he cancelled him at that. He kind of got cancelled before cancel culture mm. and he wasn't allowed on TV for quite quite a few years after that. And that was that was the birthplace of, of comics, it's the Tonight Show. Yeah. It was there live at the Apollo at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So Sullivan, Signal Mason, he had two minutes left to wrap up his act and he thought he'd given him two fingers. He must have said two. <laughs> two. So wow. something like that happened and, and that was What it. an extraordinary way for your career to be, you know, Well, it was cancelled. I didn't even know you could get cancelled in 1964. Well, I, I mean, I think there were lots of rules about who you could employ and where they could be employed, mm. weren't they? I mean, certainly, you know, as far as black comedians were concerned, there just weren't any. Well, black comedians, and that was prior to prior. Mm-hmm. So um, you're testing my stand-up history knowledge now. Okay. Uh, but, no, so. I don't want to test your knowledge. <laughs> it's not going to turn into an examination. So what is it about Jackie Mason when you saw him that, that inspired you? Well, it, it was the rhythms and it was the comparison, say, between Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So he would do the whole thing with Jews and Gentiles and and, and that's kind of, I do lots of comparisons between Indian people and English people. And yeah. I'd say that was one of my inspirations that you can actually say this, you, you can talk about these comparisons. And, but I, I loved his rhythm. See, the thing about Jackie Mason is, was his rhythm, as you say, and, and mm. not only the turn of phrase, but his expression. And he can just talk about anything. Is it right for me to be coming on the Michael Fenton Stevens podcast and talk <laughs> to him about other things that have got nothing to do? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles and he's talking about, the, the rat pack is it what do i have to do with the rat pack why is he bringing up the rat pack but he keeps on talking till he has a point and he'll keep on talking it doesn't mean if he's talking he doesn't have a point to talk but he keeps on talking that's what you do in a podcast you don't even have to talk about anything in particular but he has a loose concept of the podcast you pick five subjects to put in a time capsule but he hasn't got shit to do with what i'm talking about but i'll keep on saying it and we have a conclusion and that was just kind of- no, that's absolutely right. That rhythm, that constant gunfire rhythm. Machine gun, wasn't it? That's amazing, amazing performer. Into his mid-80s. When we saw him, it was in his mid-80s at that point. Yeah, astonishing skill, astonishing energy, uh, and speed of delivery as well. Mm. And that's what I say about that thing where sometimes he would just be talking and he wouldn't be talking. He would just be <laughs> going, just make noises. And it was incredibly funny. I, a long time ago, I did a recording for the BBC of a thing called uh, The Joys of Yiddish, which was a programme explaining Yiddish and the history of, of that language. And um, I was the only Gentile involved in it. <laughs> and it was brilliant fun. I had a fantastic time. But the delivery of a Jewish joke, mm. it's wonderful the way it's affected the whole of comedy, I think, because you know I remember there was a joke, two aliens fly from opposite ends of the universe and land on the moon at exactly the same time. And uh, they walk towards each other and he says, hello, what's your name? And he says, my name's P... (laughs) He says, oh, right, what's yours? He says, my name's... He says, oh, it's funny, you don't look Jewish. (laughs) And and the fact that you can do a joke like that, it's a very Jewish joke. It's a very Jewish joke. And the fact that you can even do the voice is incredible. <laughs> Not many people could deliver that joke, Michael. <laughs> uh, you've got you've got the skills to do that joke. Well, I avoid doing a spoof Jewish accent at the end, which is good. <laughs> I've got a whole routine actually uh, on Jewish people and and anti-Semitism in this show. 
mm-hmm. but I'm not going to spoil it for you because no, no. Um, we'll let the, the council <laughs> lobbyists turn up instead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, these are important things to be talking about, though, Paul, without a doubt, mm. because we, we live in a world where people are astonishingly divided by simple, rather stupid mistakes, I think. Mm. And uh, it's very easy to point out to people the ridiculousness of it, which you do in your routines. Well, it's it's sad that the wrong people, in a way, are watching it. We that's the thing. Now, um, I used to put a lot more stuff up online, but the thing about putting your material online now, which is a free for all, mm. is it's free and it's um, it attracts the trolls and the haters. So they say they call them haters, don't they? Yeah. And it's it's almost like on, it's busking, basically. That's what uh, online material is busking. Yeah. But when you see a busker on the underground or in the street and you don't like their stuff, you don't stop and talk, tell them how shit they are. <laughs> no. Hey, mate, I'm just going to stop you there. You're shit, mate. <laughs> just, just walk past. Carry on walking. Yeah. And that's the same as scrolling. You carry on scrolling. Yeah. Don't stop. No. You're not a fan. And don't follow the page. What are you following me for if you don't like me? <laughs> Understand? <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? I do quite often when people say unpleasant things. Because, you know, I mean, I do a lot of publicising. This week on the podcast, we've got this person. And suddenly, out of the blue, people will say, oh, no, I don't like them. <laughs> now, I, I look at it and think, mm, what do I do? Do I block? Do I ignore? What do I do? And every now and again, I can't resist, but go, I'm sorry, I didn't know you knew them. And then they write back, well, no, but I've seen them and I never liked them in that. Never liked them. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I won't be listening to that one. And you go, okay, well, you don't have to listen, obviously. Mm. I mean, I'm only just letting you know they're there. But I would suggest you do listen because actually, if you listen, you'll realise this is a really lovely person. Yeah, it's strange that people believe what's been written about in the public domain yeah. and they'll, they'll, they'll believe a critic uh, it's, it's a point of view. Yeah. We live in an opinionated industry, which is everything is a point of view. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not in a sport. No. <laughs> and if, if this was a sport, we'd have a different conversation about this and say, fair enough, he's not great at that. Yeah. But it's like, no, they're successful. People didn't like the Beatles. <laughs> no. But it doesn't matter if I don't like the Beatles, because people did like the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. That's what made them successful and the biggest band of all time. <laughs> I don't particularly like some of the viewpoints of John Lennon. I didn't like some of the things he said or did, but I can appreciate what he became and who he was. Yeah. And what he wrote. And what he wrote. Yeah. yeah he was a cle- clever guy, bit of an arsehole at times, said some of the wrong stuff, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Some people might agree with it. Yeah. Well, but the point is you have the right to say that, I think, mm. without people going, you can't say that. You go, well, it's, it's, it's an opinion. Mm. Now, the problem is that people then apply that to my opinion is this. And you say, yes, but you can have it as opinion, but everything in the world proves that to be wrong. Well, exactly. Well, okay, Paul, I think that Jackie Mason is just a fantastic performer. I've I've always adored him. And I never really understood, because I didn't know the history of it, why he wasn't incredibly famous, why he wasn't Mm. Bob Hope. Yeah. Because, in fact, he's better than Bob Hope. Yeah, I thought so. I thought Bob Hope was more one-liners and mm-hmm. and puns, whereas Jackie Mason, I thought, was a more rounded and alternative stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Way before alternative stand-up was as big as it became, mm-hmm. you know, in the mainstream era of comedy. I think that's why he had a big resurgence right at the end of his mm. life when people discovered his material and went, hang on a minute, this is this is brilliant. Uh, this is what people are doing now. Well, you can go back to list the stuff from the 60s and 70s and 80s, mm. and it's uh, it's remarkable. And he was a big name in the UK. All the, the, the crowds uh, 
majority Jewish audiences. Mm-hmm. You, there isn't really a Jewish person I ever meet that doesn't know Jackie Mason. No. But above a certain age, though, because I've spoken to some younger Jewish people and, uh, and they don't quite know. And, and I think the history of stand-up is very important to know where stand-up is coming from now, and, and, and that's being lost now. Uh, people don't understand where the originations are of certain. If you're into music, know the history of music. If you're into comedy, know the history. Yeah, Film, yeah. I'd say the same, but people don't really do that anymore. Do they not? I thought that stand-up comedians usually are very keen to know what's gone before. If I go and see a TV booker where I'm working on a show and I mention Richard Pryor, they wouldn't even know who he was. Really? Yeah, that's, that's where we are now. But that's weird. That's people working in the industry who ought to know those things. They ought to know their job. They don't know their job. It's rather like uh, I remember once standing in a queue at the BBC, at the foyer, at the television centre, and the person in front of me said, hello, I've come to see, uh, and said a name, and the person said, yes, uh, your name is? And they went, Judy Dench. Jesus Christ. And he went, okay. How do you spell that? How do you spell that? Mm. You know, uh, and see, the story that will go back now from his side of it was, well, this actress turned up called Judy Dench. She was so full of herself. She <laughs> thought I should know her how to spell her name. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you should know how to spell her name. It's mm-hmm. Jane Judy Dench. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I almost did a film with, actually. Did you? Well, I was close to getting a part oh. in, um, what was it called? It was called Victorian Abdul, mm. Stephen Frears' film. Yeah. And I met Stephen Frears for this film, oh. and it was with Judy Dench playing Queen Victoria. And uh, I didn't get the part, actually, but um, I kept the beard and the moustache, the Maharaja <laughs> moustache for it afterwards. But I absolutely agree that people should know the history of comedy. You should know what's gone before. Oh, yeah. If only to know when the brilliant idea that you've just had has been done before. It's probably been done before. Probably, yeah. It's probably been done before, but you should study your art form and the history. But people don't. I could go to a a young stand-up now and they wouldn't know anything, even from the early BBC Live at the Apollo days, never mind the vaudeville era. Well, in that case, it's important that we put Jackie Mason into the time capsule Mm. so that you can see him in the future and that other people could discover him. Yeah. So that's your first item, Paul. That's my first item. My second item... Right, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm afraid we have to interrupt it for a moment to play some ads, but we'll be back in a minute. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back, and thanks for staying with us. I'm sure hearing the rest of the things Paul Chowdhury wants to put in his time capsule will make it worthwhile. So here they are. My second item, and I'd say this item, I wouldn't even call it an item. It's more of a world. Mm. And it's what people say is as close to a time capsule that we have on Earth today. Right. Is YouTube. (laughs) True. YouTube is probably as close as humans have ever come to a time capsule. Mm. If you want to go back in time, just go onto YouTube, type, you know, you can go and type Jackie Mason in. You can, I, I was yesterday watching a documentary on the Incredible Hulk and, and the life and times of the actor Bill Bixby, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, who, who I was a huge fan of. I, I grew up to the Incredible Hulk when I was a child and I wouldn't have gone back and watched the documentary about Lou Ferrino or Bill Bixby or, or why it was cancelled all of a sudden after six seasons and and the majority of writers were women and it, and the majority audience was women because of the nuance and the pathos of of the character mm. Dr. Banner, who became the Incredible Hulk. It was very um it was written for kind of by women, for of us for women, but and and children were the last down the list of viewers. Yes. And I and I thought it was a children's show. <laughs> The Incredible Hulk. You're waiting for him to turn into a big green monster, whereas they want him to turn back into Dr. Banner. Yeah, and the, and the mm. big green monster was because Stan Lee didn't have a good printer or something and printed out The Incredible Hulk when it came out green. He goes, oh, we'll make him green then. <laughs> and there was no green makeup in, in the 70s. So they had to go to Canada to get some kind of grease. It was grease they used to put on him. Right. Green grease. Yeah. So all the directors and the actors, that, the directors that I've got, Clothes from back in those days where, where Lou Ferrino rubbed past me and the, uh, the grease rubbed onto my clothes and I could never wear them again. <laughs> so this is the world you go into when you start examining you know, it, YouTube, isn't it? Yeah, you go down a rabbit hole. And I've just bought a TV which has YouTube on it. Ah. It, it literally, you can spend hours on YouTube. You get down a hole. They call it a rabbit hole, mm-hmm. a YouTube rabbit hole. You're, you're in there for days. <laughs> and then even, in, even when you come out of it, they start recommending you the videos. Yeah. Come back, come back. I know. See, I used to be the guy that used to collect and record a lot of TV programs and I'd have hours of videotape of archive footage and thought, mm. one day I'll go. And now it's all there. So hence the bare walls. Yeah. Well, I've got some videos in those two cupboards there, okay. as you can see behind. Mm. But um, I don't need these videotapes anymore because, but then some stuff I haven't found on YouTube, but it's very rare. Yeah. Very rare. The only thing I didn't find was a, a Bernard Manning documentary when he went to India to do stand-up. It was a Channel 4 show. He went to India to do stand-up, and um, he died on his ass. <laughs> and he, and he, at the beginning, he, there's a sequence where he, he, he wakes up in the morning in his um, box of shorts, and he goes, I just had a dream. I was, in, I was in India. And then he goes to the hotel, and he opens the curtains. Fucking hell. <laughs> 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 He's in India. The, the sad thing about those performers, and Bernard Manning, I've saw Bernard Manning perform and didn't like his material at all, but you couldn't deny his ability, his timing. His timing was spot on always. Yeah. And his ability to control a crowd was fabulous, but just you went, why are you telling that joke? Yeah. 
Well, as you say, his control of the audience coming through working men's clubs mm -hmm. in the north of England at the time when he was coming up. And he was kind of almost pandering to the crowd because that were some of the viewpoints they did have at the, at the yeah. time, maybe even now. So uh, uh, we go back to, I had a conversation with the Channel 4 newsreader, Krishna Guru Murthy, for my podcast recently. Mm -hmm. And um, we were talking about the Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss debate. Um, and he thinks that certain things he's going through is, is racism because Middle England aren't really going to accept, uh, as he thinks maybe even I agree with him, is uh, an Indian prime minister at this point when you're going up against someone like Liz Truss. Because when you go, England and is a very divided country in certain parts when I talk. Yeah. When you, London is very cosmopolitan, big cities are very mixed and cosmopolitan, but st people do still hold certain viewpoints in certain parts of, and sectors of society, unfortunately. But of course, you know, Brexit to a large extent, a lot of people seem to me, when they were interviewed, seem to be voting for completely the wrong thing. They were voting <laughs> with the idea that what it would do would stop all immigration. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, and people say... People that voted Brexit are not racist, um, and I do agree with that. I don't think some people who voted Brexit maybe were for the right reasons, mm -hmm. but then, you know, you, you're kind of, you're playing to two audiences there. <laughs> it's a crossover. Yeah. And I, I disagree with people that say, you know, Brexiteers, mate, or racist, or, well, you probably won't say it in that voice. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying anyone with a Cockney accent or working class accent is racist, by the way. It's just a voice I put on now and again. Yeah, yeah. To, well, I, I'm not saying, I've, <laughs> we can go that way now. I'm not saying well, I've read Brexit makes me racist. Actually, that sounds more racist than the other character. It does, yes. <laughs> the more upper class do sound a bit more racist sometimes. Yes. With that whole thing, well, I don't mind them, you know, just not here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. I live in Tunbridge Wells, and just yesterday I was talking to somebody who was talking about somebody in Tunbridge Wells who owned a house that overlooked a golf course. And this golf course was up for sale in order to be converted into houses. So the person whose house overlooked the golf course bought the golf course. <laughs> in order to keep the view clear. Incredible. That's the sort of world we live in. Well, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods had a real struggle, and that was in America, which is coming through as a mixed-race man golfer mm. in a predominantly middle-upper-class. So, so Upper-class in America is the same as middle-class over here, by the way. It's a yeah. slightly different system, isn't it? But, yeah, uh, to get to his level is, is remarkable. Yes, he just had to be the best, which he was. The very best, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, so what would you recommend I put in a search engine on YouTube? Oh, right. So this is the thing. If we As a time capsule, it's almost a time capsule in a time capsule, <laughs> YouTube. So where do we start? I would say put my name in <laughs> uh, and just go down a rabbit hole of Paul Chowdhury videos. Although they have kind of cut back on, on copyright issues. So back. In the earlier days of YouTube, there would be a lot more on there. Mm. But now people are selling them on streaming platforms or former DVDs, and, and they have been taken down. And is it YouTube that police that? Or Well, yeah, or people strike a copyright a copyright warning against them. Or, and you, now when I upload a YouTube video, you can actually click. If anyone duplicates this video and reposts it, it can get taken down. Right. So I think now it's almost automated from the start. Mm. So when things get taken down, it's only because you put up a video which somebody else has put up and claimed it as their own copyright. So yes. even I can't put videos up because 
if you performed on TV shows, you don't own the copyright. You're you're the performer. So I, I wish I could go back to watch your old Phil Collins impressions. From <laughs> what you can go back to, and you can go back and watch me do lots of adverts, which is slightly galling, in as much as I did those adverts and I only did them in order to earn money, which I've been paid for. Obviously, I've been paid, but now they're there, and you can watch them for nothing. I don't get a penny. And I'm still advertising the, the the product, so that's no good. Buyouts, buyouts. But one show we did do, um, well, not at the same time, but I did it from around 98 to well, 99 to 2000, was Holby City, and you were in that in 2000. I was, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was... When I started stand-up, I used to be an extra. Right. And I was uh, just to subsidise my stand-up career, and I used to go and do stand-up in the evenings and mm. before I moved on to more serious acting. And you were in EastEnders as well? Yes, I was. I was. People remember. You weren't an extra in that, were you? No, no. I, 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 I literally... Uh, who did you play in that? Adam Cherry, was it? Yeah, the Reverend Adam Cherry. I was the vicar who buried Ethel. Well, really? Yeah. I, I, had a, I had a workshop for EastEnders way back in those days, in the earlier incarnation of putting Asian families in. Yeah. So they would do improvisations where the writers would give us uh, a plot and we'd have like, oh, my brother's going out with this girl or their dad doesn't. And then you'd improvise around it and they'd take notes. And that's how they came up with the storylines a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. And what did you say? Let's just buy that shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's buy that shop and we'll work <laughs> in that shop for three series. Yeah. We can go down any cliched route you want. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you went up against the, you went up against the beast, which is Coronation Street, the rival. Yeah. But I've done that as well. So yeah. I'm not a fool. You played for both teams. I have, yeah. Yeah, I sort of jump about. I've always done that, jump about, and, you know, just keep going. That's what I like about your career, Michael Fenton Stevens, is uh, <laughs> you're versatile. You are our Al Pacino. I am a jack of all trades and <laughs> definitely master of none. <laughs> okay, let's put YouTube into the time capsule as the second item, Paul. Excellent. Right, let's move on to number three. Well... Now, this is another one which I say is um, my lifeblood of my career is theatre. Mm-hmm. Is theatre is a dying? It's it's in a, a state of disarray at the moment. Mm. They need funding. There's uh, lots of theatres around the country, which uh, are listed buildings, which is the only reason they're still around and they haven't built flats on them as yet. Yeah, but but there are so many historic venues that I've played over the years that I love going back to, like the City Variety in Leeds, where Charlie Chaplin used to perform. Yeah, amazing place. Um, uh, lots of amphitheatres, which we don't use in England anymore. An amphitheatre would be something like the Coliseum. Yeah. Uh, but it's very hard, I'd say, for stand-up, but for actors, it's a quite a nice place to perform. Um, the Apollo in Hammersmith, which was the old Hammersmith Odeon, mm-hmm. where Queen did their infamous 1974 Video. I wouldn't say infamous, but one of their <laughs> one of one of their the their their last concert before they hit the stadiums type of thing. And mm. yeah, just so many theatres up and down the country that I performed at. Uh, going back to Bradford, Bradford, um, what was it? Alhambra, Alhambra in Bradford, beautiful. George, St George's Hall, I performed at as well. Oh right, yeah, St. yeah. George's Hall, yeah. which has now just been reconditioned that. Which is right next to the Alhambra, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did do the Alhambra, I think, before, and then I did, I'm back there actually in, in October, November. Brilliant. Which is an incredible venue, three, four tiers. Oh. When you're in the, it gives you chills just being on those stages, just even doing a sound check. 
Yeah. Because um, you don't realize that we have these rooms and these buildings in, in England and and more and more of them are being taken away and, and no funding is being put into them. And it's the lifeblood of someone like me. Yeah. I'm not a TV stand-up. I'm a, I'm a live performer and that's where I perform best. And that's where my skills lie mm-hmm. is performing live. I can go up and do a two hour show on stage. Whereas mm. you could never do that on TV. Those days are over. Yeah. You know, let's get some people on a panel and uh, get them to throw custard pies at each other. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, it is was I was a big fan of, but I'm saying nowadays it's very much been dumbed down, isn't it? Yeah. I think that if you're good at the quick one-liner, then you'll work fantastically well on TV. Or if you have a particular style where you just grab the screen for a, mm. a minute and do what you do and people like it, then that works well. But if, in fact, what you do is you slowly build a situation, yeah, that doesn't work on television, certainly not on panel games, no. Well, even the panel shows are being killed off now, and now it's all reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see who can get off with who in the quickest time possible and who can fornicate with who very quickly. And that's a TV show. Stick yeah. an advert in just before they're about to to uh, get involved with each other in the biblical sense. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always thought that's why Taskmaster is such a, a skillful show because it seems to be a combination of a mm. game show, but actually you feel as if you're watching a reality show as well. Well, I did series three of Taskmaster in 2016, and I've known um, Alex Horn and Greg Davis since they started stand up, which shows how long I've been going. But and they, they're good friends of mine. And mm. um, at that point, only series one had been aired, right? On on Dave because it was on Dave before it went to Channel Four. Yeah. So nobody quite knew the show because it always takes a couple of series for a show to like that to come into its own. And um, when I did that, I didn't quite know how to play. So I Played, I was myself really on that show and no one had really seen that side of me. No. Because they'd only seen me do stand-up on on the Apollo or when I used to present stand-up for the week on Channel 4 and mm-hmm. and just mainly stand-up shows and things like that, comedy garlands on Channel 4. But And that was when I was really me and people were quite, um, fortunately for myself, were bought into my normal persona, which uh, I think is quite normal to me, but people see me as an eccentric. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> it is a great thrill, though, isn't it, to stand on a stage? Whenever I've done tours, I always, when I turn up at a theatre, that's the first thing I take a photograph of is the, the great big empty theatre. Mm. It's got an eerie feel, the thousands and millions of people that would have been, even when you're on some of those stages that, say, Laurel and Hardy have performed on, or, yeah. who are probably my biggest inspirations outside of Jackie Mason. Mm. Laurel and Hardy were my, as a child, it was my first um, incarnation into stand-up and I wanted to be like Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. And then growing up to Bruce Forsyth and, and seeing how people really use the stage. Mm. And and in this country, in those days, in the 60s and the 50s, Nights at the Palladium wasn't a TV show. It was where Bruce Forsyth would host a show and uh, yeah. the likes of Benny Hill would perform live. And then when they were so good live and they had such a following, TV said, we need to put you on. Yeah. Now it's the other way around. It's like, oh, right, this this person's got a good five minutes. Put him on. And then they'll try and put him on tour the next year, and they'd have to write another hour. Mm. From where are they going to get this hour from without writers? And the writers can't necessarily write for their voice because their persona hasn't quite been developed as, as yet because it does take a, a while to develop a, a persona, and, 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 and you evolve over time. Yeah. And um, it can slightly hinder a growth of a comic now. Mm. I always enjoy watching that process, though, watching somebody who in a way has imposed 
a sort of character on themselves in order to survive early mm. on. And then as time goes on, you see that soften and change and they come closer and closer to themselves quite often. Yeah. And then they have that fantastic control. It's wonderful to see somebody really relaxed on stage with all those people waiting for them to say something else that's funny. Yeah. And they have they have forever to do it. Well, exactly. It's like the great late comic American George Carlin. Mm-hmm. Now, George Carlin evolved and became different George Carlins over the years. Uh, there's a new documentary about him I want to see. But uh, he was another inspiration of mine. But I look back at some of my earlier material, and I think that you know, my life has changed since then. So so should your stand-up. It's an extension of yourself. So you become the person you are today because of the person you were then. Some people say, oh, I can't look back at that old stuff. That was rubbish. But that was who you were. And that's made you who you are today. So almost embrace that, even though it's quite difficult to watch yourself. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. You can watch some of those things and you don't come across anything that's racist or sexist. Mm. They're just saying funny jokes. So it's always been possible to do that. It's just that in a way, as you say, sometimes the audience pushed them that way. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure that it was always what people felt themselves. Yeah, it's... um, Well, I think with Bernard Manning, it, it felt like he did feel that himself yeah but then at the same time i've performed in rooms where you could feel certain members of the audience had those persuasions and uh, it's best probably not to pander to someone's prejudice Mm. even if the whole crowd is like that sometimes you have to go out in your shield yeah yeah and and fight against the grain which creates progression Mm. in society and uh, to a certain degree comics are the last bastions of free speech, they say. Yeah. I mean, over the years, over the three, now four specials, major specials I've done in, say, 10 minors to going up to Edinburgh countless times. And I talk about my experience being an Indian, ethnic origin Indian mm. man living in London, my parents immigrating here. And my dad came over in the 1964 and jobs we went through and factory jobs and and the struggle my my family went through for me to get to this point today is yeah it, it all comes into play and the evolution of man i'd say is mm. is where i take it and and i'm fortunate to be and have so much diverse pickings of of subjects and, and material i think nothing is off nothing is out, out of bounds with comedy i think everything should be discussed i'm mm-hmm. not saying discriminate in any way i'm saying everything should be open for discussion, as we are discussing today, yeah, in any way a joke could be, and a punchline could be written about these topics. Yes. But it is strange, isn't it, that you would always, not necessarily in your publicity, but in publicity, in reviews of things, your ethnicity would always be mentioned, or it seems to be. Well, I was, you know, like when I started stand-up, it was a very different time in mid 98, early 2000s, mm. and there were a handful of Asian stand-ups. So it was... Asian comedian Paul Chowdhury or Indian, British, Anglo-Indian. It, it was almost like, it was almost like, well, he's different. Yeah, yeah. He's different to the middle-class white man. And even then there weren't many sexually diverse performers or even female comedians around at that time. Yeah. Um, but perhaps you should do one of those DNA tests and then just say, no, don't forget that I've got a little bit of Chinese <laughs> and, and Icelandic as well. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we come from the Punjab and um, Alexander the Great conquered India at one point. So it may explain why certain relatives have green eyes. And yeah, we could go back to generations here. But I'm a Sikh. I'm a British Indian Sikh. 
Mm. But listening to my voice now, you just think he's just a, a bloke from London talking to Michael. <laughs> yeah. Another, just two blokes having a chat, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to seeing you in those theatres again on tour, Excellent. and I will put them into the time capsule for you to preserve them. Brilliant. Yeah. And that preservation needs to be given to the government, I think. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, if they're not around anymore, I can't be doing stand-up shows on TikTok. all right let's move on to the next item um now i've got well this is where we have to narrow things down now and i thought i'll narrow it down well so what have you got on that list yeah my last one i want in yeah is the filmography of stanley kubrick who's my favorite film director right now stanley kubrick if you go back and watch for those of it now i may have lost half the audience here but hopefully (laughs) the crowd is (laughs) i'm not sure you maybe have cbbc uh, viewers or listeners here. <laughs> but Stanley Kubrick arguably would have been cancelled today with some of his behaviour and directorial methods. Right. Just about the way he'd deal with actors and do 90 takes per take, per shot. Mm. And um, his interaction with Shelley Duvall in The Shining, who pretty much pulled out film after that. And yeah. He almost gave her a nervous breakdown. breakdown, didn't he? I think he did give her a nervous breakdown. Did he? Yeah. Really? Because he wanted to get that performance out of her, mm-hmm. of, of a wife who's on the verge of being murdered. Uh, it's a psychological horror, really, The Shining, made in mm-hmm. 1980. Uh, well, actually, I worked with uh, the first AD of that film, actually, years later. Right. Uh, I did a film called Colin Me Kubrick, which was about a Stanley Kubrick personator. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. With John Malkovich. Oh, yeah, no, I know that film, yeah. You know, they only used my voice in the end, but uh, the first AD worked on The Shining on that film. And if you look back on, I think it was Vivian Kubrick, who's his daughter? One of his daughters made a documentary about The Shining, Mm. and he's in that documentary when Jack Nicholson's going through. It's a great documentary if you haven't seen it. Well, we've got YouTube, so we'll be all right. It's on YouTube, actually, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But if you look back on films like The Shining, A Clockwork Orange, um, which was shot all around Hertfordshire, mostly in England, uh, which he withdrew in England. People say it was banned in England. He withdrew it because of the copycat crimes which were being committed in the 70s. I remember them. The droogs. It was a frightening time. Yeah. yeah well, I was I was born in 74, so it was 1971 was the release of that film. So it was slightly before my time. Oh, I remember um, I remember walking down streets on the way back from the pub and seeing people walk towards you with bowler hats and walking sticks. And thinking, oh, ridiculous. Oh, shit. Ridiculous. Terrifying. He was a big fan of comedy as well, actually, wasn't he? He was Peter Sellers, his big Peter Sellers fan. Mm-hmm. Let Peter Sellers run free reign in Doctor Strange Love. So many different types of film, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think is arguably one of the greatest motion pictures of all time. Mm. If you look back on films like 2001, uh, I'd say I'd say um, Steven Spielberg wouldn't be the director he is or became if it wasn't for Stanley Kubrick. No. We wouldn't have Star Wars in the versions that we have exactly. without it, yeah. Exactly, because if you look at 2001, now they call it in film, when you see a Tarantino film like Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. or Reservoir Dogs, which is an incarnation of, um, of Eastern film. I can't, I, the name slipped me now. But they, they call it, they call it um, homage in film. Mm-hmm. So let's say I was to make a film and lift something from Eyes Wide Shut I'd call it a homage, whereas in, in our industry, it's called plagiarism. Yes. <laughs> in copyright infringement. It's copyright yes. infringement, yeah. <laughs> like some of the stuff he did in, like even Tarantino did, it's considered homage, which is mm. strange. 
Yeah, there are some amazing films. Eyes Wide Shut is a very strange film, isn't it? But it is beautifully shot. Oh, incredibly shot. Um, but it was responsible for the breakup of um, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Was it? Yeah, they say it was because of that film. Because they were asked to do such strange things. Well, and the intensity of the scenes, and you, they're right, probably yeah. they didn't have a, any time apart, and they say it, yeah, it, it led to a breakup. Wow! But you know, going to Full Metal Jacket, going to Barry Lind- Lolita, which uh, they remade in years to come, but there was talks of it coming back, but I don't think they'll remake that. No, well, some Spartacus. Oh, God, uh, you really, you forget, don't you? You forget. I do. The, well, I certainly forgotten all those films. I'd forgotten that Spartacus was a Kubrick film. And you look back at those scenes, you think how, this is before CGI, it's a black and white film, Spartacus and Parts of Glory. You think the time it would have taken yeah. to conduct those scenes. And when I worked with directors, you realise how much hard work and how lazy I am in comparison. <laughs> I did Devils, a 10-part series with, with Nick Horan, who did mm. um, Doctor Who and Sherlock, and that's with Alessandro Borghi, an Italian actor, and mm. Patrick Dempsey. So I did 10 episodes in the first series, and I did six months on that shoot. Yeah. Six months of a 10-part, and I just, uh, season two is being aired in August this year in America. And um, when I worked with Nick Horan, and you, they, these guys do 14, 15-hour days, directors. Mm. <laughs> And in those days, it would have been probably longer hours doing something like Spartacus. And you feel quite lazy in comparison as an actor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been here all morning. <laughs> in my trailer. When, when, when are we having lunch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you think of that shot at the end of Spartacus, I mean, I know there are some amazing battle scenes and fight scenes in it, but when you think of the shot of her leaving Rome on the cart and going past all the people who've been crucified. Yeah. It's an astonishing shot, isn't it? Well, every shot Kubrick did was like a picture. Mm. The term motion picture can best be applied to Stanley Kubrick. Because if you look at 2001, you look at posters that people have up in their houses of 2001, and it's all, it's all just shots from 2001 because it's so precisely shot. So that in a way, almost every shot is in itself... You could stop at that point and just it, look at it. And just look at it. It's a motion yeah. picture. It's a, it's a moving picture. Mm. And that's what film is. It's a moving picture. So I'd say Stanley Kubrick, his methods wouldn't be tolerated today in cancel culture because <laughs> an actress no. would come forward and say, you can't treat me like that anymore. And, and his last uh, years were spent in, in England. Right, yeah. I actually, when I was at film school, I ended up getting Stanley Kubrick's telephone number. Really? How? I, somebody gave it. I don't know. I wanted to meet the guy. Uh, I was young at the time. I was in my early 20s. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to meet Stanley Kubrick. And I'm not sure if I ever called the estate or I chickened out. Hmm. And I wonder if he would have ever spoken to me. My knowledge on film back then was, and even now, you could never learn enough about film. Hmm. But it's like comedy. It's a learning process. I'm always learning comedy and I'm always learning about film. Hmm. But um, do I regret? And maybe I should have called him. What could have happened? And he's not with us anymore. So yeah. Well, I think actually they're the things you always regret are the yeah. things you didn't do. Yeah. Um, it's like if I ever had the opportunity to speak to Alfred Hitchcock, mm. it's, it's, he's up there with, with, with Hitchcock and I'd say um, arguably one of the, in my era, apart from going back to Howard Hughes or, or, or the old films of the 30s, um, director-wise, I, I didn't really appreciate those films from the likes of, you know, because it's slightly before my time. So 
whereas he reflected the zeitgeist more from mm. my time of living. Mm. Were you a fa- Howard Hughes fan? Yes, yeah. I'm sure that all those directors would now be uh, impossible to employ because they were great taskmasters, weren't they? They yeah. just insisted on something being done the way they wanted it. Well, Howard Hughes did the original Scarface in 1932, which is such a controversial and breakthrough movie. And then it was remade by Brian De Palma in the 80s with Al Pacino. Yeah. And is is apparently it's in post-production now for a remake. Is it? Yeah, a third. The the Pacino version is quite extraordinary. It's incredible. But the the last few scenes of it, if you just see that in isolation, if you just look at the end of it, you think, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's completely over the top. But if you watch the whole film, you completely accept this person at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. And, and to tie it up, it all goes back to Stanley Kubrick, I'd say. I'd, I don't think there's a film director of recognition and of kudos that wouldn't use Stanley Kubrick as Stanley Kubrick to filmmakers, as I'd say what Jackie Mason is to some comics. Yeah. So um, would you agree with me by putting this in the time capsule? Uh, Absolutely. I would. Yeah. I've always found his films difficult because they can be really disturbing. Interesting. You say that because um, you go back and watch Kubrick films and you'll, you'll read something else into a film. It's very rarely you have to read a film. Mm. You have to watch a film. With Kubrick, you have to read his films. Right. Because there are so many nuances and hidden meaning behind certain aspects of the film. And you think, oh, I didn't see that then. No. I didn't know that meant that or that led to that or the, what did they call it in 2001 with the apes and they threw the polyth, but the polymer. Yes. The great black obelisk yeah. that they come and touch. And it touches on the space race and it's just so many things it touches on. Mm. And that was made in 1968. <laughs> and you can watch it now, remastered, and think this is, doesn't look like it. It looks like it was made in the 90s. Yeah, amazing. Okay, right. Well, let's put Stanley Kubrick at his films into the time capsule. That's the last thing you want to put in there that you want to keep. What yeah. were the other things you had that you didn't pick? Now, um, the two things, uh, well, I, Dogs is one I wanted to put in, but I didn't put in the end. Um, mm-hmm. But I think arguably Dogs is, is, could have gone in there if I could squeeze a dog in. Yeah. But then I would say conspiracy theories. Now, as a whole, I would say the moon landing conspiracies would be one of them. You know, people saying the moon landing conspiracy, that it didn't happen. And just conspiracy ge- theories in general mm-hmm. is what I want to put in. Because as you say, we're going, we're rounding off this podcast by almost going back to the beginning. Yeah. So we're tying up loose ends here. Beautifully done. And uh, <laughs> it's um, it's interesting how, as you say, everyone's an expert. People have done six years of medical school, but a couple of pages of Googling <laughs> can outweigh your six years of medical school. <laughs> I had exactly that conversation last night. A friend of mine was talking about the fact that he'd had some little growths removed from his forehead. Right. And my other friend said, why'd you do that? He said, because the doctor told me it was a good idea. He went, oh, that's a load of rubbish. He went, what, the opinion of a doctor compared to your opinion? Mm. The other thing that is weird is that people will often accept a much more complicated theory and a much more detailed and ridiculous world than the thing that actually happened. Mm. They'd rather the world was more complicated. Yeah. Strange. And it's complicated enough as it is. Yeah. It's so complicated, even the government can't control it. No. <laughs> but people think the government are so intelligent that they're controlling this all. Yeah. And they're putting us in these situations. They are so, they're so stupid, they can't even, 
control a cost of living crisis after a pandemic when a recession was predicted. Yes. That's how stupid they are. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what is what needs to be spelled out? They're idiots. Yes. And idiots are thinking idiots are very intelligent. <laughs> to use the phrase, this has taken us by surprise. You say, really? Yeah. Nobody else. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. All these arguments can be debunked and conspiracy theories going back to the Illuminati, the invention of the Illuminati or the idea of it uh, was quite beautifully put in an Adam Curtis documentary. Mm -hmm. I can't get you out of my head, I think it was. And it's quite poignant to discuss this now because the likes of Alex Jones has been fined millions for claiming the Boston bombing attacks and the Sandy Hook massacres where all the children were murdered was uh, fake and it was all actors. You know, these are the... And people believe them. I mean, millions of people believe them. Millions believe them. And people Terrifying. make millions from it. Mm -hmm. from advertising revenue. On, on, and even now he probably thinks it's a conspiracy that he's being used as a scapegoat. Yeah. And whenever they form companies or radio stations, or they always put the word truth in it somewhere, don't yeah. they? Yeah, exactly. It's always the truth. This is the one place where you can come to hear what's really happening. <laughs> yeah. Because the mainstream don't want the truth. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying the mainstream always t do tell the truth. I'm, no. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not defending the mainstream in any way. But the problem with the mainstream is they get their news reports from Reuters a lot of the time, which is a platform which all the news stories come, and they'll pick a few because they can't report on everything. No. So, But then people think, all oh, right, this is all constructed. No, it's it's just what's being picked up, and then other journalists tend to pick up what the other journalists picked up, and it's a domino effect. Yeah. Like so many things in life, it's sort of just happened. Nobody really planned it. I think people put too much emphasis on the idea that things are planned. Mm. Most of the world is coincidental. It's sort of accidental. It's sort of why I'm not religious, because I think that it's easier to accept the idea that, well, even miracles are just coincidence. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to go down a different uh, rabbit hole if we talk about religion and what Let's people. not. People, <laughs> we'll be Let's another. Not. We could have. I could have another three-hour conversation with you about this. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but there we are. Let's not have it now. Let's take those ridiculous conspiracy theories. And uh, hang on a minute. Are you making me do this? <laughs> oh, I see what you're up to. Oh, very clever. No, I'm not going to put it in there. You can't make yeah. me, you know. See, <laughs> you think this is a conspiracy theory now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's obvious. Come on. It's obvious, Paul. Yeah, what I'm trying to do now is silence people like you. Who know the truth. The truth. Yeah. yeah Michael, unfortunately, you're a lot more clever than I expected. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I, I didn't think you could see through me that quickly. Yeah. I'm no fool, you know. <laughs> Paul, how lovely to meet you. How lovely to you talk too. to you. Thank you very much for giving me your time. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Paul Chowdhury. If you've enjoyed this episode, and why wouldn't you, you can see Paul live on his tour of the UK from the 19th of October 2022 through to the start of December 2022. All details online. In fact, there's a link in the description of this episode. If you're listening next year, then I'm afraid you've missed it. But I should imagine it's available on Prime or something like that. And if you're listening last year, then you're psychic. And why didn't you get in touch with me to tell me I'd be doing this and save me a lot of worry and hassle? Unless your last year is a last year from 2024, in which case the first description applies. And yes, you have missed it. 
I hope that all makes sense. Right, please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and feel free to follow me or my time capsule on social media. We're happy for you to get in touch and we'll get back in touch. You can listen to the theme tune written by Pastor P's Music on Spotify at your leisure. This was a cast-off production for Acast. It was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Anyway, before I go, I'd like to do a little survey, if you don't mind. You see, I'm thinking of moving. I quite fancy going to Wales. Actually, I was thinking of going to, and please excuse my pronunciation, Clanfairpool Gwyneth, Gogereth Windrobeth, Clantisilio Gogogoch. Do you think that's a good idea? Or do you think I say too much already? All right, what about LA? That's a lot shorter. And quite a lot easier to spell, actually. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.